I'm here with Carolyn Forchet, a renowned poet, editor, translator, and human rights activist who has published four books of poetry, and most recently, a memoir. In 2013, Carolyn received the Academy of American Poets Fellowship, given for distinguished poetic achievement, and in 2017, she became one of the first two poets to receive the Wyndham Campbell Prize. She is a university professor at Georgetown University and lives in Maryland with her husband, the photographer Harry Madison. It's an honor to have you with us today, Carolyn. Um, Oh, thank you. So we're here to talk about your new book, What You Have Heard is True, a memoir of witness and resistance, which was just published this March, actually. Could you say a few words for our listeners about the period in your life which your memoir focuses on and what made you decide to publish it now? Yes. Well, I was in my 27th year in the summer. I traveled to Spain with my friend whose mother was a Salvadoran Nicaraguan poet. Her name was Claribel Alegría, and her daughter and I were friends, and we decided we wanted to translate Claribel's poetry into English. It had never been translated into English. I spent that summer doing that, and I heard them talk that summer about a very mysterious relative of theirs who lived in El Salvador. It was very interesting to hear them talk, and they... they, they presented him, you know, very curiously that he was this sort of a Robin Hood and he was intelligent and mysterious and he was a motorcycle racer champion and a, he had all these different interests, but they weren't quite sure who he was. They didn't know whether he was involved somehow with the developing guerrilla movement or whether he yeah. was working for the CIA or what he was doing. <laughs> and that fall in November, he showed up on my doorstep with his two daughters and spent three days at my house. And remember, I'm only 27. I don't know anything about El Salvador except Claudia mm. Bell's poems. And, you know, he, he talked to me for three days. His, his idea was that war was coming to El Salvador and he very much wanted a poet from the United States mm. to come and learn as much as she could about this, about the situation there. So that when the war began, this poet could somehow explain it to the American people because he believed that uh, that the policy of the United States would be crucial. Right. Well, I remember when I was first reading your description of how you were first acquainted with this man, I'm sure like many readers, I was just completely shocked by how courageous and open-minded you were just to say yes to him. I was wondering what you think accounted for this decision. Do you have like a gut feeling that led you to say yes? Or how are you able to find it within you to make such a spontaneous decision? Well, you know, during that previous summer, I felt really ignorant of Central America. And the people who were gathering every day to talk about politics and literature at Clady Bell's house were very intriguing and compelling. And they had fled uh, murderous military regimes in Argentina and Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay. That time, it was very difficult. And I began to be, I was very curious. I wanted to do something. I didn't want to just be a passive North American. And also, young, like many young people today, I wanted to do some good in the world. I wanted to join the Peace Corps, and I'd never done that. I had all sorts of things, ideas about what I might do with my life. And this was a moment when someone was actually opening a door and presenting an opportunity for me. 
And I knew that if I didn't walk through that door, if I said no, I could never really view myself the same way again. I could never tell myself I'd never had the chance. So for me, it was something that just I had to say yes to. Wow. And your memoir, I guess <clears throat> I was also wondering what, how, it must have been so difficult to, to relive so much of what you write, you write in this book. It seems like it was clearly very like traumatic. And also it's just so jarring to read so many of the descriptions of death and decay and just violence all around. How was it to write? Like, was it, how, what made you decide to publish the book now is also, I guess, a question. Well, it took me a long time to even begin writing it. I left El Salvador in March 1980. I did go back at the end of the war and several times since then, but I didn't begin my memoir until 2003. So, that, you know, that's 23 years later. It took me that long to mature and to process my experience. I had written a few poems, as you know, about that time, but nothing else. And it, it, it just took time. I, I had to process it. I had to mature. I had to think about it and have some distance on it. And also during those early years, I was traveling around the U.S., you know, giving poetry readings and talking about El Salvador and trying to help build a sentiment toward anti-intervention in Central America and toward sanctuary and toward witness for peace. So I, it just took time. And when I finally began it, I found that since it was my first prose book, and for other reasons, it took me 15 years to write it. And I always wondered, you know, will I ever finish this? And is the are the events receding too far in the past? Will they still matter? And to my actual surprise, at the time the book is published, we have the, the situation of the refugees fleeing the horrors and the dangers of Central America for mm-hmm. our borders and seeking refuge. And so once again, the story has become important to us, only this time in another way. And so I was hoping to write a story that would allow especially young readers, but anyone really, to, I wanted to create it in such a way that the reader could go through the journey that I went through, could take that journey with me, and would somehow come to understand how my activism was born, and how my consciousness was formed, and also something about what these people are running away from, what the refugees are fleeing. Because, of course, people don't just pick up their children in their arms and grab a rucksack of a few possessions and run (laughs) thousands of miles through a desert. They they don't do that. They don't leave their homes unless what they're running from is more frightening than anything they can imagine in their future. Definitely. And I really got the sense that while I was reading it, I, I feel like I could practically envision like walking alongside you. And I think a a big part of that has to do with the notes that you infuse your novel with, which you penciled while you were in El Salvador. And this oscillation between your memoir and these notes really transports the readers to those years and really made me feel personally like um, I was part of the journey with you as, you know, and I I guess I was wondering what, what was your writing process like as you were writing your memoir? How, like, would you, 
did you want to write it specifically chronologically, like in terms of um, bringing back those notes into the into the organization of the memoir? What 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 was your process like? Well, that's a very good question because the the process is partly why it took fifteen years to finish it. Not only that, but of course, I teach full time, and you know, I was raising a son, and there was a lot of things going on. But but really, I I'd not written autobiographical prose before. I'd not written prose since I was in high school, so. Partly in the beginning, I was writing about too many parts of my life. You know, I was writing about being in South Africa later on and being in, you know, just too many places and too many parts. And then I realized at some point that the real story I had to tell first was this one. And after that happened, I wrote and cast aside three other versions of this book because I didn't feel that I had it yet. It hadn't really. It wasn't what I wanted, so I started over and started over, and finally I found this book. It was, uh, you know, it was really moving through a tunnel, and I couldn't go back, and I had to go forward, and I, you know, I had to get to the end. And the yeah. problem with writing this book was that it wasn't just something I had to write; it's something I had to relive while I was writing it. So. Everything had to be reimagined, relived, remembered. Now, those particular two years are very vivid in my memory in a way that other years of my life are not. I, I think they were vivid because of the intensity of what happened to me during that time. When, when we have very intense experiences, yeah. I think our memory does something different than it does in normal life. One part of your memoir, actually, that I found particularly striking was when you and Luisa were essentially preparing for the possibility that you were about to die. And you dressed as um, bourgeois women on your beds in a hotel room. And later you wrote that you would never again feel the fear that you felt in those days, even in other countries at war, and that there was a special quality to the fear that you experienced in El Salvador. Could you say more about this? Like, What accounts for the special quality of that fear? Well, for one thing, I would say that it was a fear that everyone felt. It was a fear that was in the air. It, it permeated life. It was, it was the ground of our being, really, because the time when I was there was, we refer to it now as the time of the death squads. The war had actually begun, but it wasn't being called that yet. And at that time, it was a war of terror against the civilian population in the cities as well as in the countryside. And the death squads were everywhere. They were apprehending people. People were disappearing. They were killing people. At the, at, at the time I was there, I would say at, at, at its height, they were killing a thousand people a month in the capital city alone. So, mm -hmm. um, so the quality of the fear was that you never knew. You couldn't sleep quite because most, of, most people were abducted or taken from their places of residence in the middle of the night, you know, and, and and you, or you'd be grabbed from the street. So if you were walking somewhere or driving somewhere or, or just in your room at night, anything could happen to you at any moment. So it wasn't like, you know, being in a war where you are in a zone of conflict and you're in an area where the fighting is occurring or you're not. This was the, the population of El Salvador was being preyed upon by squads of killers who not only killed people, but they killed them slowly and brutally and they engaged in mutilation. And it was very, very difficult. So I, I never, I never lived again 
in an atmosphere where every moment of daily life was permeated with fear. Images of, you know, bodies and this looming possibility of death and this pervasive fear really seems to reverberate throughout your memoir. You write that you grew familiar with the rotting, sweet, sickening smell of dead bodies on the side of the road. Do you feel that you ever had to desensitize yourself to the danger that you were facing? Or how did you cope with the trauma from these experiences? Well, you know, I don't think it's possible to desensitize yourself from it at the time. In some cases, the mind will do that. The mind will go numb. There'll be a state of shock or something. For me, that really didn't happen. I, I got physically ill sometimes, but you know, it's it's how do you go through this? You keep breathing, and if you get to if you get through it, you know, then then all of that subsides until the next moment that it comes. I mean, there's no real way to get through this. It's something that happens to you. And then it's never over. I mean, you live in the aftermath of it. You you know, it comes back and comes back in another form. And you're never the same person after that. So, I mean, I, it's hard to describe, but, and it wasn't just me. What I really want to emphasize is that this was something that everyone was experiencing. Everyone that I, I knew and that I was around. Yeah, I I definitely got that sense from your writing, and it kind of leads to something I found really captivating, not only in your memoir, but in your career as a poet. You've coined the phrase, um, the poetry of witness. And in your memoir, you write about how Lionel specifically wanted a poet to document the horrific events taking place in El Salvador. And I know that, in fact, he joked that journalists believe too much sometimes in objectivity, which is why he also wanted a poet. I wanted to know like, how you feel that your vocation as a poet can really shed a different light to these to dire situations such as this. It's, this is an interesting thing because my friend Terence Dupre, who wrote a book called The Survivor, An Anatomy of Life in the Death Camps. This was about the Holocaust, but also about the Gulag Archipelago in the Soviet Union. And he was studying the psychologies of people who actually lived through and survived those experiences. But he had a lot to say about poets in that book. And it intrigued me that there could be poets who would write about such things, poets like Paul Celan, Anak Matova. And, but I never thought it was possible for me or for American poets, North American, U.S. American poets, you know, to, to find their way toward that kind of experience in their work. And then much later in my life, well, you know, a few years later, I'm there and I'm in the midst of this. And I I didn't really think about it at the time, but American poets at the time were criticized if they wrote poems that even took place in politicized environments, you know, even if they weren't particularly political. My my poems about El Salvador were very controversial when I published them because, you know, they weren't viewed as political. So mm-hmm. I wanted to find a way of thinking about those poems and talking about those poems that wasn't so polarizing and that wasn't so much um, a question of a contrast between personal life and the intimate life of a, a domestic sphere and the hearth and the political life that was, you know, had to do with the institutions of the state. And I found this in the realm of the social. And so I just wanted to find a way to read poems that had been written in extremity in a way that understood that context rather than just ignored it or pushed it aside. Yeah. 
Wow. And your memoir kind of has the same title, or it's perhaps titled after the first line in your poem, The Colonel, which has been uh, really anthologized. It's an incredible poem. And uh, when I first read it, I remember what a chilling effect it had on me. And I was actually wondering if you might be open to possibly reading it for our, our listeners. Would you be you want the Colonel poem? <laughs> yes, I could read the Colonel poem. I'm going to have to find it for you because I didn't know I was going to do that. But it's not a hard thing to do. That poem was written as prose, actually, in the beginning. It was not written as a poem. And what happened is that I thought, well, I will save this for some day when you know, I'm going to write a prose book, perhaps. And that's what I'll do. I'll save it. And that's when I'll include it. And then it got mixed up in my poetry book. And a man who was a Yeats scholar, I gave him my manuscript, and there was the Colonel poem tucked into this, you know, poetry book. And he, he said, you know, this is the strongest poem in the book. And I think you should, you know, this is really wonderful. It should have a prominent place in your book. And I said, no, you have to understand something. This isn't a poem. And he said, no, you're wrong. You're very wrong. It is a poem. So here it is. He convinced me to get in the poetry book. Thank you. The Colonel. What you have heard is true. I was in his house. His wife carried a tray of coffee and sugar. His daughter filed her nails. His son went out for the night. There were daily papers, pet dogs, a pistol on the cushion beside him. The moon swung bare on its black cord over the house. On the television was a cop show. It was in English. Broken bottles were embedded in the walls around the house to scoop the kneecaps from a man's legs or cut his hands to lace. On the windows, there were gratings like those in liquor stores. We had dinner, rack of lamb, good wine, a gold bell was on the table for calling the maid. The maid brought green mangoes, salt, a type of bread. I was asked how I enjoyed the country. There was a brief commercial in Spanish. His wife took everything away. There was some talk then of how difficult it had become to govern. The parrot said hello on the terrace. The colonel told it to shut up and pushed himself from the table. My friend said to me with his eyes, say nothing. The colonel returned with a sack used to bring groceries home. He spilled many human ears on the table. They were like dried peach halves. There is no other way to say this. He took one of them in his hands, shook it in our faces, dropped it into a water glass. It came alive there. I am tired of fooling around, he said. As for the rights of anyone, tell your people they can go fuck themselves. He swept the ears to the floor with his arm and held the last of his wine in the air. Something for your poetry, no, he said. Some of the ears on the floor caught this scrap of his voice. Some of the ears on the floor were pressed to the ground. Wow. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Welcome. Welcome. Um, wow. Every time I hear that, I just get chills. And the part of the description of the ears and one of the ears coming alive in a glass of water, it just, I can't imagine 
seeing that in person and writing about it afterward with such lyrical clarity. And I guess I kind of got the sense reading a lot of your poems, including your poem, The Visitor. And there's a line in The Visitor, I think it's the final line, which is really kind of breathtaking. And you say, there is nothing that one man will not do to another. And Mm -hmm. this is perhaps like a bigger question, but I really, I wondered in reading these, these poems, how did your time in El Salvador affect your outlook on the human condition itself? You know? Well, I think, you know, the Salvadorans that I knew and loved and worked with there really changed my consciousness being with them. And, and they also, in Lionel's case, did so deliberately. I mean, he was really trying to help me to see the world as it really was and trying to help me to understand that my education and my experience in the United States as a North American was of a particular kind and that I had been formed to see the world in a particular way. And we don't usually pay too much attention to that. We just look at the world and we assume that what we're seeing is is what is and that what we're seeing is what everyone else sees. And what I learned was that this wasn't true, that you could change the quality of how you see the world. You could change completely how you saw it. And this was a, a great gift to me, a great blessing. So I would say that I was utterly changed by my experiences in El Salvador. And I never came back from there. I came back to the United States. A person named Carolyn Forche came back to the United States, but I wasn't the same person. And I never would be again. Yeah, I actually... And that was a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Wow, yeah. I I really wondered about the role to which faith or spirituality kind of functioned into that. And I know towards the beginning of um, your memoir, you write about the Catholicism of your youth. And then later when you met Romero, um, Monsignor Romero, and now St. Oscar Romero, um, you had the feeling that you were in the presence of a living saint. And you describe um, St. Oscar, um, Oscar Romero, um, you describe him as having seen like a soft light that was silvery that emanated from his eyes his skin, even his fingernails. And you, you call it the light such as sanctity bestows. And I guess I was wondering, how how did experiencing El Salvador from such a lens of the role that Catholicism or the role that Christianity or spirituality had to play in it, how did that affect your personal faith or your personal spirituality? No, that's a really interesting question because, um, you know, I went to Catholic school for 12 years as a child and I was taught by Dominicans and um after my formal schooling in, in a Catholic school ended and I went out into a secular university and out into life and during the time of the Vietnam War and, and the Civil Rights Movement, it was really, I drifted away from uh, practicing Catholicism. Partly, I think certain aspects of Vatican II had so altered what the liturgy was and all of that that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm old enough that mostly I remember the old, you know, pre-Vatican church and an odd thing. But I was, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't any longer spiritual, but I didn't practice Catholicism. And I had that sort of, you know, that questioning attitude that all high school students develop. I had that. And then I find myself back, I find myself in El Salvador, and suddenly the theology of liberation is everywhere. 
And, you know, there's the popular church and if people are having masses on boulders in the middle of, you know, the countryside. And, and I'm meeting these wonderful priests who are deeply committed to the poor and wonderful nuns also deeply committed to the poor. And I'm introduced to the principles of the theology of liberation. And there is, of course, Monsignor at the heart of everything. He is the one voice in the country that has any institutional power that is speaking back to this barbarity and this butchery. And, you know, despite what eventually might cost him, he was brave. And they were all brave, these nuns and priests. And I, you know, I saw faith practiced in a living way, in a way that I think Christ would have approved of. And, you know, when you, you you don't always see that. You don't see that, you know. And I had ever been in a community like that. I had never met Catholics like that. And I'm not saying that the whole church was that way, because, of course, there was still the old church was there. The old established hierarchical conservative church was also available in El Salvador. But the vibrancy of the popular church was not to be denied. And so I was, you know, tiptoed back into Catholicism, you know, through this. I was a little, well, you know, I said, I'm a, not a good Catholic. And Monsignor gave me communion anyway. Nobody cared if I wasn't a good Catholic. Nobody asked me when the last time I went to confession was, because I'd have to be true. It had been years, you know. So I found myself surrounded by these wonderful souls and who had all taken, accepted the preferential option for the poor, which is, of course, the understanding that if you are going to, to put yourself at the service of the poor, you must also accept their fate. You know, you have to be fully with them, including in their manner of death. So what one thing that really impressed me about the Salvadorans that I was with then was that how they were really willing to die for each other, absolutely and utterly, truly die for each other. And so they would do anything to protect each other and help each other. And many of them did die. So, you know, I saw a living, a living church. And when you come back and you... You're, you lose touch with that living church. Sure. You know, you feel it. You feel it as a, a, you mourn it. It's something that you grieve the loss of. And you, know, I don't really think I'll ever see that again, maybe, yeah. because it, it also was a part, partly due to the fact that, you know, we were in such an intense situation, but it was alive. And Monsignor Romero, he was a human being. He was, he said his knees used to, wobble or shake when he was afraid and so he wasn't unafraid what he was was courageous which means you're afraid but you do it anyway you know you're afraid but you stand up anyway and you know the last i saw that light around him or thought i did the last time i was with him which was about a week before he died and you know we were we and then finally we that was the light I saw around him was when he was thinking about his answers to a journalist's questions. And I taped what I think is the last interview he ever gave, which was in response to those journalist questions. And then after that, we went to supper in the, in the kitchen of the convent of Divine Providence, where he lived. And uh, he had a little casita there. And we had Leonel and myself and Madre Luz and a few younger nuns and Monsignor all had supper. And it was about a week before he died. And that was when Monsignor said that I really had to leave the country 
And I spent my time trying to persuade him to leave because he was in great danger. And we were all very worried at that time about him. And he said to me, no, uh, my place is with my people. I'm staying here. My place is with my people. And now your place is with your people. You must go home and you must tell Americans about our situation. I was bereft. I didn't, I wasn't quite ready to leave. And I was upset that I couldn't persuade him to leave. But of course, he had to stay. And of course, I had to go. It just sounds like that that encounter with um, Monsignor Romero must have been so amazing. And I just am so, so appreciative of you taking the time to speak with us about, about this. And, um, and thank you. Well, Monsignor was a saint. It, we've all known that for a long time, and I'm happy that the Vatican now knows it. <laughs> thank you so much.